Hello, and welcome after a brief pause back to Weimar Fashion Made in Germany. Since it's been a while, I wanted to review key points from our last episode and then focus on this week's themes. Now, a little housekeeping before we get started. I'll be posting episodes a bit more sporadically throughout the spring season, so please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow the artificial silk femme on Instagram for the latest updates. So a few major themes we discussed from last episode, the last episode included first, the flaneurs or female version of the flaneur in Berlin society. And as we talked about, she was really the archetype of the new woman or the neue Frau of the 20th century. She was not an object of representation. She was an intellectual and an expression of the modern experience. She was emancipated, economically independent, with the profession and career goals of her own. Aside from that, though, think of her as a female dandy, in a sense, captivating the public's attention with her extravagant appearance. She, like the 19th century Parisian flaneur, roamed the city, its cafes, and was always on the precipice of its latest fashions and their ephemerality. She was as much a part of the city as an observer of its trends and tendencies. In German culture of the 1920s, the flaneur was shorthand for the Berlin myth of representing the metropolis, cosmopolitan glamour, and cultural vitality. Second, Ulsteinhaus. So this we reviewed quite in depth, and Ulsteinhaus was really an extraordinary te testament to Berlin's fashion journalism. It was the largest publishing fashion empire in Germany, owning 19 newspapers and magazines, which really began in the 1890s when they offered subscriptions at low monthly rates. And this goes into our third concept, Ulstein Verlag's fashion publication, Die Dame, which really helped give visibility to the flaneur, which can be seen through their roster of women fashion journalists that included Nelly Sachs, the Austrian Jewish novelist Vicky Baum, and Irmgard Coyne. It's also important to note here that between 1919 and 1926, most of the fashion layouts and cover pages were created by female designers and artists like Erika Mohr, Martha Sparkuhl, and Steffi Nathan. Even the daughter of the modernist architect Peter Behrens, Petra Fiedler, joined the staff in 1923. Lastly, Die Dame's section Modenotizen, or Notes on Fashion, was one of the most important columns for the publication and featured detailed descriptions and remarks about the latest trends, fashion accessories, and hairstyles. Now, what Ulstein Verlag did that was different from other publications was that for every Modenotizen that was signed, it was signed by its author. Some of the well-known writers, mostly all of which were women. And their commentary really sought to inspire and inform all of the fashion trends and was really considered modern, but also encouraged a sense of individuality, like this excerpt from the German-Jewish fashion editor Johanna Thal about comparing dolls to women. Quote, 
This comparison is not modern because such faces are out of fashion for women and for dolls. Today, we women have our own individuality, which describes the spirit of the independent woman and has begun to influence her appearance as well. Fashion in its many forms supports this drive for individuality. Every woman can dress differently and still be in fashion, end quote. And that pretty much sums up the main points from our last episode. Now this week, we're going to look at the storied allure of the department store and its relation to the display window, which was ultimately designed to entice onlookers in. Now to start us off, we are going to look at one of my personal all-time favorite books and French literary classic, Emile Zola's The Lady's Paradise. Now, this was a novel centered around the 19th century department store, which really captivated the hearts and minds of middle and upper middle class women. In the following quote, it captures the power of the department store and its arbiter, the main character of the book, Octave Moray. Quote, His creation was a sort of new religion. The churches, gradually deserted by a wavering faith, were replaced by this bazaar in the minds of the idle women of Paris. Women now came and spent their leisure time in his establishment. The shivering and anxious hours they formerly passed in churches, a necessary consumption of nervous passion, a growing struggle of the god of dress against the husband, The incessantly renewed religion of the body with the divine future of beauty. So this this quote really really captures the spirit and is really emblematic of of what you see and like what you read and the visuals that you you sort of conjure when you're reading this book. And it's really a fabulous study and really study into the birth of the department store and what that did for the livelihood of many women. Now, department stores had actually been a prevalent part of Weimar culture since the 19th century, just just as much as they were in Paris, which is when this book was written. Um, Even places like Wertheim's, which grew to be the largest department store in Europe in 1897, After its remodeling in 1927, it was over 1 million square feet. Wertheim's was even featured in literature, such as a short story by Robert Walzer in 1907 in his story, The Four Amusements. And it really illustrates that department stores not only paved the path for the thriving and competitive consumer culture, but it also bridged the gap between high culture, the arts, literature, theater, and low culture, or shopping. So let's take a look. Quote, on the top floor at Wertheim's, where where people have coffee, something delectable is currently on view. The dramatic poet Zeltmann, perched atop a small cane stool, Upon an elevated pedestal, an easy target for passing glances, he ceaselessly hammers, nails, pounds, and cobbles together as it appears to all observing him lines of a blank verse. The small rectangular pedestal is tastefully wrapped in dark green fur twigs. 
The poet is clad respectively, tailcoat, patent leather shoes, and a white cravat, while all represented, and no one needs to feel embarrassed to give this man his full attention. What's marvelous, though, is the shock of russet hair arching from Zeltmann's head past his shoulder and plummeting to the floor. It resembles the mane of a lion. But who is Zeltmann? Will he liberate us from the ignominy of seeing our theater in the heads of so many saltpeter factories? Will he write out national drama? Will he someday appear to be the one we've been pining for so black puddinglishly? In any case, we must be grateful to the directors of the Wertheim department store for putting Zeltmann on display, end quote. So in this story, The Four Amusements, it goes on to talk about the theater and how it's slowly losing its presence and prominence in Berlin culture. And I think this was... So this was written in 1977, but it was really onto something because as we will see, as consumer culture and the department store begin to blossom in the teens and 20s, it really replaced the theater and became a part of spectacle. And it became the central place that provided a, a sense of culture and livelihood. And this was for all classes. Now I want to introduce our next section with a quote from the architectural critic Adolf Bene, who muses on the textural interplay of glass surfaces from the Wertheim department store. So if you're on a subway or at home and you have a moment of respite, I just want you to close your eyes and try to imagine this. Quote, But here there arose a new type of store, a bold light frame of pillars between which enormous glass walls captured a sea of light. The inner light court is clear, the transparent in its simple organicity and of lovely living brightness in all aspects. A severely oppressive weighty structure has been done away with overnight and on organic form, a totality can breathe. The magical healing has a charming effect, as does the bold opening of the wall, which still had only a corrupted connotation in contemporary design, having been identified simply with the facade, end quote. So I know that's a bit weighty, but I just want you to close your eyes and play a lot of those, that imagery of that lightness and that sense of glass and this weighty structure of an an older architectural style being done away with and this idea of something organic sprouting from it. Now, one major element to many of the department stores of the day, a material that came to symbolize its allure through its physical transparency was glass. Glass windows, glass walls, and entire glass structures, which today are now all too common, From its entrances to its multi-story facades, glass was seen everywhere in the early teens and 20s. In the 1880s, plate glass windows had already been used in American department stores to help mass merchandise display its products. In Tietz department store in Berlin, that was designed by Bernard Seying on the Leipziger Straße, he had created a four-story glass panel building with 16 windows across. 
And this is going to be, if you think about it in terms of perspective, um, it's rather striking when you have a lot of these historicist and neoclassical buildings of, of an older era and, and a different aesthetic. And then you have this all glass building. The size of the 20th century department store showed off a store's success and status and its importance to German social culture and the economy even influenced age-old laws like dropping regulations of covering window displays on Sundays, which I surmise was probably something having to do with the church and a day of rest. And this was since the beginning of the 19th century that they dropped these age-old laws, which is pretty pretty radical if you think about it. And as I'm as I'm talking about this and something that that keeps coming to mind is this idea of the department store and religion and and it being almost a new religion or consumer culture paving the way for a new religion. And so I just want you to think about that and especially in this context where they're dropping this these laws of having to cover windows on Sundays. Now, the diffuse barriers which by by materiality glass had created between inside versus outside began to really take shape in Austria in 1903 with the Wiener Wiener Werkstätte, where they focused on simple geometric designs that helped focus the gaze of the onlooker into the display window itself. For all of you art history nerds out there or people just interested in art history and and design, similar to the Bauhaus, the Wiener Werkstätte was an artist collaborative with a goal of bridging arts with craft and challenging notions of what was high art versus what was low art. Their primary goal was to, quote, bring good design and craft into all areas of life within the fields of ceramics, fashion, silver, furniture, and the graphic arts. It was in keeping with the Vienna Secession's idea of Gesamtkunstwerk, a total work of art. Just as the Vienna Secession had created against the old neoclassical style of the Association of the Austrian Artists, the Wiener Werkstätte had initially been promoted as a declaration of modernity over the old order. Now, designing dazzling window displays and the art of window dressing became an established profession in Germany. In 1907, the German Werkbund organized a conference on the decoration of shop fronts, and this spurred three schools for window trimmers, as they were called back then. In 1909, there was an annual window dressing contest where organized by the Berlin Retail Organization. So this was a massive effort as a part of the fashion industry to have window trimmers as an established profession. And much like designers first getting their credit for their costumes and films, and as we talked about in our episode about film and fashion, window display artists such as Stephanie Hahn were credited for conceptualizing and building the creative, or the window display, for Wertheim's department store. And if you're interested in the history of visual merchandising and window dressing, I would heavily recommend you look up Stephanie Hahn. She was sort of, um, she was a pioneer in her field. 
By 1925, the National Organization of Window Dressers was founded by, and that was called the Bund der Schaufensterdekorateur Deutschlands. And in 1930, two-thirds of Germany's window dressers, that's 6,000 of them, were members. So this is, again, this is a massive, almost, fleet of people heading into this profession. Now, the Schaufenster, or window display, was a powerful entry point for the customer because it inspired an intimate conversation between this potential shopper and really their wildest dreams come to life on display. And as we've spoken about before, uh, the new objectivity, the philosophy and style to show objects as they are and very functionalist and geometric, This fanciful, and really without any fanciful decor, the new objectivity really helped perpet or sort of aligned in tandem with this idea of this glassy openness and these all glass window store, store window fronts. Another thing about glass is that in Weimar, Germany, it really also illustrated class distinctions. So while some were even hired to become window gawkers and pay people to entice them to look into windows, the rich were afforded a certain inherent privilege of distance. And it also, glass became an important part of urban architecture and housing. And it was those that were most likely privileged that lived in these glass-walled houses that felt as if they were on display and vice versa. So that's really an interesting dichotomy between being too privileged to actually look into the glass window, but then your life in a way is on display in your own interior. And I'm going to continue with so as we we talked about this book i really highly recommend it and it's it's really great in terms of talking about the the zeitgeist of the weimar era in alfred döblin's berlin alexanderplatz um there is another central passage where he discusses the main character franz biberkopf elaborates on class distinctions and window store displays so i'm going to read that to you Quote, nothing compares to the challenge and shamelessness of the city shops display windows as department stores. Any private citizen can, without a bother, set up shop entire department stores and display his wares. Here there is no censorship and there is in much less dangerous intellectual areas of literature and art. The insignificant tradesman can decorate his wares, light them up, arrange them suggestively, One glance shows what is going on here. Needs are satisfied and new needs are bred. The job being done on humans here is intensely practical. The technical spirit goes through the streets, stirs things up and fashions things. So think about this and this idea of this like freedom to display and also to feed needs through the window store and also the idea of class. And that's a weighty amount of weighty amount of analysis that you can really take into your weekend musings if you care to. Now, another essential part of the window displays mythology and allure was the mannequin. While wax models existed since the late late 17th and 18th century, they melted under electric lights. And um, that really affected these turn-of-the-century window displays. 
In the Weimar era, the aesthetic of the new objectivity was evoked also in its mannequins. And that was seen through elongated lines of the ideal 1920s fashionable body. Or if you think of the body of the ideal body of the, the, the flapper and the drop waist dresses that supported that figure. This created both realistic androgynous, but also abstract androgynous bodies. And it was Oskar Schlemmer's new figures, a rather mechanical body, that was the template for many of the mannequin designs you would see of the era. And it was also the artists Rudolf Belling and Alexander Gumitsch and their mannequin designs. And you can find an example of their sculptures on my latest Instagram post for this episode. Now, this isn't to say that geometric forms ruled, kind of ruled the roost as being a template for mannequins or a, a general, a, an overall silhouette, because you also had realistic looking mannequins. And as we go on into the 20s, into the late 30s, when, um, when most of everything was Aryanized and the Nazis took over, they really preferred a more naturalistic body as opposed to this more abstract stylized version, which they also considered degenerate. And in a later episode, I'm gonna talk about the idea of the fashionable body and how that pertains to its Aryanization. Now, as I mentioned before, you additionally, you had these live mannequins that would entice people or street gawkers that would entice people to come into the stores. And there was even a case in 1928, um, a Hamburg lingerie boutique owner who was fined for his live window display mannequin who caused a traffic jam of voyeurs. It became more and more common to have actual women and black people as well as people of, and especially people of color, to be used as models in the latest fashions in live shop windows. And this was since the 1890s. Market research from the 1920s found that while women spent less time reading newspapers and therefore less exposed to the newspaper adver advertisements, they did spend a good amount of time looking at products displayed on store windows. And in a test, they found in a test study, they found that on average, women looked at store windows two seconds longer than, um, than men. Now, if we, as we head towards the end of our discussion, um, we're going to look at some of the film and literature of the time and furthermore, and how it really captivates the fascination with the department store. If you're a film buff fan or interested in Fritz Lang, who was um, the director behind Metropolis, he created a, so there was a four hour long silent film called Dr. Mabuse the Gambler. And that, that has an interesting department store scene. And in it, you see Dr. M, who is a psychologist and sort of this criminal mastermind who uses his powers of hypnosis to run the Berlin underworld of gambling and counterfeiting. And there's this one interesting scene where M is looking into a window and a little girl is reflected on the mirror side viewing a diamond-shaped knife display. And in the next scene, you see her walking by a bookstore selling an array of books and prints. And this display is accented by a spiraling disc that hypnotizes her to look further into it. 
And in the end, I don't want to spoil it because you might want to watch this four-hour-long silent film, his murderous tendencies kind of get the best of him. Now, in Hans Falada's Little Man, What Now? Um, that tell now another great, um, another great writer, and especially in terms of in the context of German literature from the 20s and the 30s. So, in his book, he tells the story about a young married working class father trying to make his way through Berlin, working as a department store assistant, and he develops a growing addiction to the Schaufenster. So I'm just going to start start with this quote. Quote, He arrived at the shop window with a bedroom suite in it, and there to one side stood a dressing table. It had a rectangular mirror and a delicate greenish hue in a brown frame. The dressing table itself was rectangular too, with a set of drawers to the right and left. It was really a ma- it was really rather mysterious how one could fall in love, but this was the one. The only one, Pinneback, the main character, looked at it at length. He stepped forward, then back. It was beautiful either way. The mirror was was a good one too. It would be lovely to see Lamshin, his wife, sitting there in the morning in her red and white bathrobe. It would have been lovely. Pinneback sighed sorrowfully and turns away. Nothing. Nothing. Not for you and people like you, or people who manage it. Goodness knows, but not you. Go home, little one, and fritter, fritter away your money and whatever you like and can afford it, but not, other, not things like that. So it's really interesting how he's visualizing his wife in, in this window store display. And this really goes back to my first comment that this was really almost a, like a phantasmagoria or like you could really see your wildest dreams come through in the window sp- store display. Now, this book echoes a lot of the left-wing reactions or reactions you would find from Nazis, from the Nazi party, about the Schaufenster and its potential to corrupt Naturally, this aesthetic was naturally the aesthetic of the new, the new objectivity and the, the glass culture and this new glass culture was really considered void and superficial. And the Nazis wasted no time to then assign blame to the Jews and citing it as morally degenerate and vapid. Another anti-Semitic theme that could be seen throughout Nazi publications was calling these all-glass department stores, uh, brace yourself, this is from a different time and culture, Oriental Bazaars. And I think with all of that weight, historical weight, and um, just in terms of the passages we we reviewed, I think this is a really great time to stop um, for today's episode. Now, for more information on the literature from, featured from this episode, please make sure to follow me at The Artificial Silk Femme. And as always, thank you so much for listening and, and, stay, and please stay tuned for the next episode where I'll be covering the Berlin ready-to-wear fashion industry. And thank you again because I know a lot of these episodes tend to be rather meaty. This isn't a conversational podcast. 
I dive right into it and give you a, a heavy amount of quotes and concepts to review. And I just want to thank you personally for listening. Auf Wiedersehen and have a great weekend.